So just turn to the first chapter of Jude. And the last time we finished up the Apostle Peter's second letter. And today we're going to start Jude's short but powerful letter. And as I always do when we start a new book, I just give you an overview. Who is Jude? You know, I've never read Jude. It's actually a very small one-chapter letter right behind, right in front of Revelation. But Jude was written by Jude. Okay, that makes sense. You ever hear who was buried in Grant's tomb? Grant, of course. Uh, The Hebrew word for Jude is Yehuda, which means praise. Now, this would have been common for men in that society for one or two reasons. Uh, Number one, Judah was one of the tribes of Israel, one of the 12 tribes, uh, Judah. And also, don't forget Yehuda HaMaccabeus, Judah the Hammer. This guy was a Jewish patriot, 2nd century B.C., and he saw that the temple was being desecrated by the evil Antiochus Epiphanes, and he led a revolt and eventually regained the temple back, cleansed it, consecrated it, and then, you know, the miracle with the, with the, with the oil that lasted for eight days, uh, which is actually the Hanukkah that the Jews celebrate uh, around this time of year. So a lot of reasons why it would be a popular name, but in totality, who, which Jude wrote, the, wrote this book? Well, we know that in Matthew 13, Jesus had other brothers and sisters, and Jude was one of those brothers and sisters. And we also know that in Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph and Mary came together, but they didn't resume marital relationships, any intimacy, until Jesus was born. After Jesus was born, the virgin birth, they, you know, could continue raising a family. So Jesus literally had half-brothers and sisters. Uh, When was it written? Around the time of Second Peter, we just covered Second Peter. I thought it was a logical progression to go into Jude because you see a lot of similarities there. Uh, probably between sometime A.D. 65 through A.D. 70. And that brings us to the next point, the overlap with Peter and Jude. Why? Number one, the false, false doctrine was becoming a plague in that society at that time period. So the Holy Spirit led both of them to deal with the false doctrine. And two, they would have been contemporaries. They would have known each other. They would have gathered together after the resurrection. Um, Jude wrote to pretty much believers, nonspecific. And his purpose, the fifth point, well, he says right in the first chapter, he was to share his common faith with the believers, trying to write something nice, something uplifting, encouraging. But the Holy Spirit led him to change course and change his topic to more of the unpleasant subject of those who would get in the church Uh, the false teachers, and try to lead believers away from the truth. Uh, You know, any pastor would prefer to teach an uplifting, encouraging message. Nobody wants to be cantankerous, but sometimes you have to deal with the unpleasantries of life. And praise God for Jude that he was open to the Holy Spirit changing his direction. Uh, We ponder this, James and Jude uh, didn't believe at first. Big change after the resurrection. Big change in Jesus' brothers. As a matter of fact, his brothers and sisters at times in in the families, when you read Mark's gospel and the different gospels, it almost seems like they were trying to come to Jesus and and pull him away because they thought he was maybe having delusions of grandeur. And now when the resurrection happened, he rose from the dead. Boy, everybody became a believer. Uh, You see in John 6 and 7, even his family, uh, they didn't believe in him. But after the resurrection, all that changed. And James and Jude both, on, both went on to write sacred scripture. James became the head of the earliest uh, Jerusalem church and died one of the earliest martyrs. So pretty impressive resume with, these, uh, with the change of life because of 
the resurrection. Now, in those days, many Messianic sects died off under intense persecution. If you Google Messianic sects, you'll find that back then there were a ton of them. But once there was pressure put on by the government or outside forces, like Jesus said, you know, the uh, shepherd is struck and the sheep will scatter. A lot of these guys just kind of petered off and nobody follows them anymore. Who's ever heard of the uh, the Thudian sect or, you know, some of these guys that, that were around back then? However, Christianity got beat, got pummeled, got persecuted, but it grew instead of fizzling out. And we see that worse than sometimes the sabotage from the outside is the sabotage from the inside. And we're really, that's what we're really going to focus on today. Uh, so the more we study the Bible, the more that we realize that this faith was definitely from the finger of God. So Jude, chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude is a brother to James, but a servant. Now that's a nice word. In the Greek, it means a slave. He's saying, I'm a slave to Jesus who again was his half-older brother. Now, I'm sure growing up, uh, his parents classically must have said, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> he does everything right. Why can't you kids follow in suit and model after him? But I don't think they realize the half of it. Uh, and we all have family dynamics. Come on, think about your own family, right? Uh, I, don't, I have two half-brothers. I don't know if I could actually work under them, let alone worship either one of them. <laughs> so we find in Scripture... Family thought that, you know, he was a little, maybe, again, delusions of grandeur, but the resurrection changed all that. And as believers, we get to enjoy a few things. Number one, we're called. What a blessing. God calls us. He calls us through his word. He calls us through evangelism. He calls us through other things. And we have the decision to make. We follow him. You know, we, we repent of our self-directed life, follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior, call him Lord, and actually behave as if he's Lord. The second thing that happens is we're sanctified, he says. That's an interesting word. There's a lot of different meanings to it. One of the meanings is to purify, to make more perfect, to remove the impurities. And we've covered sanctification for a long time. But it's just amazing, almost as if God reaches out individually to Russ here, sitting in the front row, and said, Russ... He's my chosen vessel. I'm going to sanctify him. I'm going to purify him. I'm going to allow circumstances in his life to make him better for me and to bring me honor by using Russ in a particular situation. And third, we're to be preserved. Preserved. I looked up that word, and it means to guard from loss or injury. That was the original meaning of the word. And to keep the eye upon it doesn't get much better than that. And that's why I said, listen, I was praying today, and I was like, you know, yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, we call ourselves Christians. But sometimes we really have to stop and take what we believe and let it sink into our heart and our behaviors, right? We are preserved, to be preserved from loss or injury. Jesus said, don't worry about the one who could kill the body, and after that he can do nothing to you, whether it be a murderer or Satan given permission to harm you. Jesus said, fear the one who, after you die, has the power to take you and send you to hell. 
That is God. So whatever happens to me, whatever injury I receive, whatever persecution that happens to me, whatever little depressions or uh, you know, issues in my life, I know that God has his eye upon me. I like that. No matter where I go, no matter where I hide, I can go back in all those cubbies behind the stage. He can still see me. <laughs> it's pretty impressive, you know? We talked about the miners underground. God still had his eye on them. He could still see them. And if he wanted them to be saved, they would be saved, right? That's pretty amazing. I love it. There's an encouragement this morning. Verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of God or our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude desires again to write this encouraging message. You know, pastors study and say, gee, how can I really be led by the Holy Spirit to encourage the body this morning? And then the Holy Spirit has him change course. He said, I found it necessary to exhort you to contend earnestly. Now, I looked up that word in the Greek, and it's ep agonizomai, agonizomai. Where in the English, we get agonize or struggle. The letter now turns serious. Now, it's not to st- he's not saying, listen, Christians, prop up this flimsy, weak faith that we all follow. You know, we have to make a good impression to the world. No, but stand up against this faith and what it's being turned into from the inside. Because in verse 4, men crept into the church unnoticed, unnoticed, didn't see them. They flew in under the radar, and they took the grace of God, the love of God, the grace that he pours out on us through his son, Jesus Christ, and they turned it into licentiousness. Basically, and, and you see it today too, because listen, we live in America, we want the American dream, we want, we want, we want, I'm entitled to, I'm a self-made person, self, self, self. You hear this stuff all the time. So of course, I want what I want. I don't care what it is. I want it because I'm entitled to it. I worked hard for it. So even in our society, you know, if you say, well, gee, God wants us to be holy. God wants us to contend for the faith. God wants us to stand up to what the faith is. And that means that I may have to sacrifice at times. And the others around you who may be successful will say, what are you talking about, sacrifice? God wants you to sacrifice? They don't get it. So what happens is even back then, the teaching was that, well, Jesus died for your sins. So pretty much you could do whatever you want, sin however you want, behave however you want, because you're, in, you're good, you know, you're in the kingdom, you're set, and Jesus died for those sins anyway. No, it doesn't go like that. Paul was very clear in Romans that when sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But should I sin so that grace should continue to abound? Absolutely not. How should I, who died to sin, live any longer in it? So it's very important to understand some of these teachings. And he also says that they turned the grace into licentiousness is commensurate with denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is Jude taking this too far? Absolutely not. These folks were purposely misrepresenting what God's love and God's grace is, and that was commensurate to denying the Lord. What Jesus are you following? Certainly not the one who died on the cross and the Jesus of the Bible, because you're teaching something different. But God in his foreknowledge knew who the saboteurs would be, and he marked them out for judgment. Go get him, Jude. Take no prisoners. Hold on. 
Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. He's writing to us. Don't we have a little bit of a responsibility here? Do we have a responsibility at times to contend for the faith when it's under attack? Well, when that happens, not at times, but when that happens. How many of us are doing that? How many of us know enough about the faith to contend for the faith? How many of us may be listening to false teaching somewhere and not even know that it's false teaching? We don't recognize it. My son, <laughs> it's so funny, when I go through, every time I go through the scripture, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going through this, uh-oh, I know something's going to pop up. But my son now is being taught evolution in the schools. So I have to sit down with him and explain that we didn't evolve from small pea-brained Australopithecus cavemen. Okay, God loves us and made us in his image. And of course, I have no problem talking about the human anatomy. I love to study it, talking about the complexity of the human eye and how certain, uh, even the reproductive systems and things in our bodies could not have taken millions of years to slowly develop. They all had to happen at the same time. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And there's so many issues with that, with the polypeptide bonds and the primordial sea and the, you know, the ultraviolet rays and all the weird stuff that's out there, and really how to apologetically contend for our faith. But what we're seeing is, you know, it's, it's so cool because I don't beat my kid up about it. I teach him, and he goes to school, and they teach him, and he, makes, he comes to his own conclusion at 11 years old that that's ridiculous, <laughs> you know? So he, he actually says, Dad, why do I have to study something that's not true? But we're dealing with that. <laughs> As a parent, it's my job, right? You just got that? i got to have my pauses be a little greater here. But the bottom line is, um, you know, when your kid goes to college, secular college, and they come back after a year or two, and they're telling you that, you know, they're really not into their faith that much, and some of these throwback professors from the 60s are just trashing Christianity openly in the classroom when even the subject has nothing to do with faith. It's just they're bent against Christianity. It's definitely... Uh, from, the, from the enemy. And, and this, we've seen these um, examples many a time. And you come to me for answers. Is it my job to give you the answers? Sure. But it's also your job and your responsibility to contend earnestly for the faith. It's all of our jobs. It's what we do as believers. Let me just give you an example from the insect world. Yesterday, a friend of mine said to me, listen, we, I, I'm a beekeeper. My friend has three hives. I have two. He, two of his hives died. They collapsed. So he said, I said, dude, let me, let me um, check this out. Let me inspect it and see what I think is wrong with it. So I go to his house, and I open up the, and it's disgusting. It's just a mess. You know, the honey's gone, the pollen, the, the insects and stuff ate through the wax combs. So what I did was I took it apart, took it apart, and I said, oh, you have small hive beetle. I can see that. That's a small hive beetle. They lay their eggs. They, the eggs eat the, the honey and such, and they make a disgusting, wormy mess out of your hive. And those are wax moths. So when the small hive beetles are done, the wax moths come and they eat the wax. That's their thing. And you can see all the cocoons there. So I'm showing them, like an entomologist, all the different things. That, oh, that's, those are mouse droppings. So the mice kind of got in there and did their thing too. Everybody had their way with your bees. But the bottom line is the bees absconded late in the summer to find another place to go. They just left. And they probably won't make it through the winter because it's too late now in the season to build up enough honey supply to make it through the winter. We don't know where they went, but they probably won't make it. 
But the point is that bees have guard bees. You know, the guard bees' main function is when they see a small hive beetle or a wax moth or uh, any type of predator come in, they're supposed to either sting them, kill them, or chase them out of the hive. They're supposed to be vigilant, and nothing's supposed to creep in unnoticed. See, the bees contend for the hive. We need to contend for the faith. Now, even when I open the hive and the bees come out and they sting me, even though I'm a good guy, I don't take offense to it because they're just doing their job. They're like, we're just doing our job. It's okay. <laughs> Follow the yellow brick road. But the bottom line is this. We need to contend for our faith in a serious note. We need to be vigilant. Otherwise, does God die? No. Does the faith die? No. Who suffers? The truth? No. But we do. We suffer. Very interesting, Jesus said, and this blows me away. It came to my mind as I was studying. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's bizarre. When you look at that, this is the Son of God. He's the one who propagated this. How could he say such a thing? That's odd. Think about it. Will he find crosses on the earth? Sure. Will he find churches on the earth? Sure. Will he find Christian denominations? Sure. Will he even see the name Jesus? Sure. But will it be the truth? Will it be so watered down that it's unrecognizable to us and to the Lord? All right, so this is something to really take serious. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Know why you believe what you believe. It's not acceptable just to go through the smorgasbord of denominations and pseudo-Christian things and just say, I'm going to find one that suits my needs. No, we find the truth. We contend for the true faith earnestly. Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God will judge apostates. He judged them in Judah's time, in Jude's time. He judged them, he gives examples in the past that he's going to be consistent. The Lord's attitude is, I've done it before, I will do it again and continue to do it. Even though you may not see it happen right off the bat, I will get to it, trust me, in my time. Hebrews 3.16, let me just go... Um, read a few verses in Hebrews 3, starting with verse 16, about a little bit what happened in the children of Israel in the uh, wilderness. He says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years, meaning God? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, right? They crossed the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness, waiting for the promised land. But what happened? Unbelief sets into the camp. With a few men, it, it, it runs through the camp like a plague, whereas millions of people started having this mistrust for God. Why did he bring us out here? Why did Moses bring us out here? Right? Tarnishing God's reputation. And the problem is, is that it spread. 
So God had to deal with it. God was angry that they allowed their circumstances to nullify who he was and he could not tolerate it. The sin of unbelief. Does that happen today? Do we believe, again, do we believe with our minds? Does it reach our heart and does it reach our behaviors, even on a lesser scale than what we read here? The second point that he gives is the angels. And we saw this in Second Peter also. They didn't keep their proper domain. Now that word means order or ranks. You've seen some of these military displays that countries love to boast about their militaries and how they march and how they're in sync and how their feet hit the ground at the same time. But God's angels, his mighty angels, are so polished. They're so much better. They're so much more impressive than any military on the earth. They don't leave their ranks. But these disobedient angels did leave their ranks. And they left their habitation, their residence, in the heavenlies with God the Father. Now, this is the apostasy of rebellion. And we read in Revelation 12 about how Satan took uh, a third of the angels and drew them with him in a rebellion against God. And we read in Genesis 6, another odd type of uh, situation where the angels left their proper domain and uh, mingled with people and there's a theory about them cohabitating with uh, women and having this hybrid race of half, you know, hybrid angel people kind of thing. But God had to destroy the, the, the world in the flood and largely because of that. But we see that this rebellion, now in today's society, even our nation, think about it, and I've covered this once before, our nation is, is a little bit birthed in rebellion, right? If you take our roots all the way back, we rebelled against the English, didn't we? And sometimes some think that it's maybe cool or being a free thinker, you know, I'm not just part of the cookie cutters to be in rebellion. We need to be careful with that because when we take rebellion to its extreme, it leads to anarchy, Right? If we say we don't need the police and we don't need the military because we don't want any authority, we don't need the court systems, let everybody just run amok. Well, that's what happened in the time of the judges. And Israel was a, a, a desolation. It was a wasteland because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the heinous crimes that were being committed against brothers and sisters, it was terrible. So rebellion eventually leads to anarchy, and God is the God of order, not the God of anarchy. He won't stand for it. Third example, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. These were the cities on the fertile plain, which we now know as the Dead Sea. Uh, understand they were destroyed for several reasons. Let's look at this first. Uh, let me just go to Ezekiel 16, because we can push this whole puzzle piece together here. Ezekiel 16, 49, two verses. He says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. And neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. So we see a proud, uh, pridefulness, uh, you know, wealth, uh, extravagance, but the poor and the needy, nobody was really too concerned about. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. From the word of God. Now, in this particular uh, book of Jude, he adds another dimension, another element to it, sexual perversion. And when I looked it up in the Greek, uh, basically, does every sexual perversion happen there imaginable? And there's no sense in going into detail. Uh, but what I will say is that things that we consider illegal in our country, they were doing. It was okay. Again, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. You see, in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a social experiment. Everything that God said in his word, they did a 180 shift. You know, they flipped it. 
If God said these things were right, then they would try to experiment in them. If God says, um, I'm sorry, they, they would say that we don't need to do that anymore. If God says that these things were wrong, they would experiment them, a social experiment. And I wonder sometimes, in, uh, if you read about the Roman Empire, or any of the empires that, that reached an apex and had the greatest military and, and wealth and things like that, see how they destroyed themselves. The Roman Empire actually destroyed itself from the inside. It was so watered down that it collapsed. So I wonder where we're headed in our nation. Right? It's getting to the point where everyone gets to do what's right in their own eyes. And even we're finding that uh, this, this, the studies show that the United States is one of the most litigious nations on the face of the earth. Because if it's good for the, for the society, but I want it to be different, I, all I have to do is get an attorney and sue them. And there's just, you can't even get into court. I mean, this civil court, there's so many lawsuits going back and forth, family court, um, small claims court, uh, you know, all these, everybody wants to appeal to the Supreme Court because they don't like the answer they're receiving. Social experiment. We're doing the same thing. What's happening is the good of me, the individual self, is becoming greater than the greater good of society as a whole. And there's just so much confusion. I follow these, again, being in law enforcement, you know, uh, when there's a decision that comes down, Okay, we have to follow that. Then it goes to the appellate court. And they say, no, 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 we're reversing that lower court. Then it goes to the circuit court. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to reverse that. Then it goes to, oh, man, how do you keep up with this stuff, you know? These judges can't make up their minds. And they're not on the same sheet of music. So it's really becoming chaotic in the law system. And it's uh, spilling out into our uh, legislature. But, you know, if you look at all these things, we see three things. Number one, there's either a leader involved in this rebellion, there's a teacher or a concept. One of those three things are involved. And it's to pull away from God's norms. So today we have to be more vigilant, especially with our faith. What's happening is the society, society's attitude is coming into the church, you see? And that's what happens a lot. Churches are being influenced by society, and we shouldn't be. So if society is saying, listen, we want to change things, we're not into uh, what God said years ago, there's all these movements now to, to just say the Old Testament wasn't important, or God's prophecies don't have to be fulfilled, and this stuff is coming into the church. So it's starting to affect the church. On a personal note, before I was a Christian, I was pretty rebellious. You know, I, I became an adult. I moved out of my dad's house, bought my own house pretty young. Um, I thought that I was on top of the world, got the profession that I wanted. Uh, and basically, I, I got to a point where now I lived by myself for, for a while, and I didn't have to listen to anybody. And that was my attitude. Man, I don't care about that. I just didn't listen. And you know what? I thought that I was free. I thought that all the shackles of my parents and, and, and morals and all and the society, I could just break those shackles and be free. But what I found was I was a slave to myself. I was unhappy. I was miserable. I was a different person. I wasn't sociable. didn't really care about somebody else's needs. Uh, I cared about my own needs. So myself was on the throne, and I was a very unhappy person. It was only until I found the Lord and I started following Jesus as my Lord and Savior and started humbling myself and bowing to him and, and giving him deference and giving him leadership in my life did my life change for the better. So listen, some of you will, are, are there, you're in the rebellious stage. You might even be 50s and 60s and still in the rebellious stage. But at some point in time, we have to realize that it's not going to get us anywhere. It doesn't, it doesn't buy us happiness. All right? It's important. Verse 8. He says, likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, 
and speak evil of dignitaries. So here's a profile of these false teachers. Let's go back to the context of the letter. These infiltrators, these teachers, and let's go through them. One, dreamers. Now, this isn't in a good sense, not like, I guess, the American dream, but a dreamer, somebody who uh, doesn't live in reality, their views are off the wall, and they dream of grandeur for themselves. If you're familiar with World War II history, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between uh, Hitler and Stalin, they were going to take over the whole world, right? They started with dividing up Poland, each one took half. The Russians were going to take the east half of the hemisphere, and the Germans were going to take the west. And this only came out after World War II. These two guys were dreamers. They were, they were out of their minds. They, they lifted themselves up so high that they really believed that the two of them should control the world. And then we know that uh, Germany invaded Russia, and then Russia invaded Germany, and it just devastated Europe. It just decimated. Uh, you, if you speak to people from that era, I just love to listen to them. I mean, they're just so fascinating, all the, the things that they went through, you know? But um, very sad. These people are dreamers. Uh, and, and it's true, when you, when you deal with somebody and their, their ideas are off the wall and, and they always have a plan and they're just, they're just not in reality, right? This is what one of those characteristics are, too. They defile the flesh. They don't use their bodies for spiritual purposes. They do everything to elevate their carnal lifestyles. Three, they reject authority. They won't submit to anyone, no accountability. Well, that's required for anyone who's involved in any type of ministry, Accountability is very important. And even if we're the senior pastor, we're still subject to the Lord or a board or somebody to hold us to accountability. Now, as I was studying this, I thought about this too, rejection of authority. Not just people, not just institutions, but the word of God. It was, was it uh, 1983 that Ronald Reagan declared uh, in the United States the year of the Bible? Do you know most of the ones who sued him most of the, the, the groups were not atheists. They were, they were supposedly reverends. You got a lot of wolves out there in sheep's clothing. They're on the wrong side all the time. Um, the, uh, what is it? The Americans for a Separation of Church and State, Reverend Barry Lynn, a lot of you are familiar. He sends letters to church every year. Don't speak about abortion. Don't speak about you know, these issues that could be quasi-political. Who are you? I'm going to send the, if he sends me one, I'm sending one back saying, you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, and this is why. But this is what these people do. They have the little, the little white collars, and they have the, you know, the robes and the cloaks, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. You know, it's true. Jesus said that about the Pharisees. So the, the word of God, as long as I live, you have the right to jump on me if I do not follow the authority of the word of God. That has to be held above everything else, Right? Uh, four, they speak evil of dignitaries, and we covered this in Second Peter. Um, there's, there's some overlap here, whether it be angels or it says glorious ones, even maybe the Lord himself um, harming his doctrine. Uh, that's, that's another quality there. Verse 9, yet Michael the archangel, this is interesting, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling, a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude now shifts his focus to the angels. He spoke about the rebellious ones. Now let's talk about Michael, the archangel, right? One of the greatest angels in God's hierarchy. More power and might than us, closer to God, closer to the throne right now, physically, geographically in a sense. Uh, but he shows more respect than rebellious persons. Deuteronomy 34 says that God 
buried Moses, uh, he, he buried the body of Moses, and probably because when Moses died, if there was a sepulcher, uh, because he was so revered, maybe the people might worship it. Even today, you see, you can go to some of these places and some churches claim to have a piece of the wood of the cross of Christ and they have glass cases surrounded or the bones of John the Baptist. That's just weird. That's relics. Um, we worship God. We don't need that stuff. And those guys are probably like, you know, leave, leave my bones alone. You know, keep, <laughs> stop messing with my bones. But the bottom line is... Um, God definitely probably moved Moses to an undisclosed location so that there wouldn't be the worship of, of him and, and his mummification or whatever. But the book of the Assumption of Moses tells us a little bit more, and it's non-canonical, but it's interesting to look at, that um, God sent the archangel Michael to bury Moses' body, and Satan confronted him and said, Moses was a murderer, and I have the earth, and I'm entitled to his body, give me his body. So supposedly, that's where this whole dispute comes from. And Mike, Michael, instead of arguing with him, said something like, talk to the hand or something to that nature. But the bottom line is that the archangel Michael, with all his power, being on the winning team, he still maintained a respectful position. Now, it's so funny, when we look at the Bible, we know that Satan wanted to be like God. He said it. He said some really off-the-wall stuff. It's recorded in Scripture. But Michael, what do you hear from Michael? He's a servant of God. <laughs> Whatever he's sent to do, he does it, and he does it well. You don't see Michael saying, gee, you know what, people like me, you know, I can start a fan club, you know, I need to get a little more exposure here. He doesn't do it. He's a class act, and we can learn from him. He always gives the glory to God, that's, and, and again, that's something that we should uh, look at. Verse 10, but these, going back to the, these infiltrators, they speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things, they corrupt themselves. So this is something where two expressions come to mind. You got these guys who, maybe from the pulpit, let me tell you something. I, I'm even always a little bit nervous when I'm up here because I don't want to mess up what God's word says. I don't want to do it injustice. I don't want to say something and then listen to it later, and I said the wrong thing. Uh, you know, I'm teaching God's word. So again, even when I come up here, I'm still a little bit nervous because it never goes away because I'm concerned that I do his word justice. And sometimes I don't think I do well enough. But here are these guys, they come in and they say weird things and they uh, make up these weird false doctrines and, uh, uh, you know, they use their free will as an intoxicating drug to lead them into places that they shouldn't go. Verse 11, woe to them for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Jude gives three other examples. Now, these are more specific. So before he spoke about a city, a group of angels. Um, uh, he spoke about the children of Israel as a group. Now he goes into individual men who have done these types of things. Number one, Cain. Remember Cain and Abel in the Genesis account, the two brothers, Adam and Eve, right, had children, and Cain and Abel were the two brothers. What happened was uh, Abel brings a blood sacrifice to God. He sacrifices to the Lord, the Lord accepts it. Cain comes by, gathers up some fruit and vegetables and says, here, I'm going to offer this to the Lord, and the Lord did not, he rejected it. Now you might say, well, you know, Cain really tried. Read the rest of the text. You know, people come up with these weird ideas. Uh, but what happens is, uh, Cain's angry at this. 
and he, there's a discussion between Cain and God. And God says, you know, if you do the right thing, it's going to go well with you. But be careful because that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over you. So there's a discussion between Cain and God. And if it was me, I would have said, okay, I stand corrected, Lord, Father. Let me, I'll, I'll do better next time. So what does he do? He leaves the conversation and kills his brother, right? So uh, what you have is three things. Number one, or, or let me just go back for a minute. What is the way of Cain? We could look at murderous envy. He killed his brother. He eliminated the competition. The other thing that we can see is, is man's way versus God's way regarding religion. You see, men will come and offer the fruit of the ground. They'll offer their vegetables. But God says the only way to atone for sin is through the blood of Christ. Now, this, again, goes back to churches, goes back to mission statements, what churches believe, right? The only way to get to God is for our sins to be atoned for. And the only way that could happen was through the blood of Jesus Christ. So even back then, God was very particular about how men and women would sacrifice to him. So there's the way of Cain. Now, on three counts, uh, he rebels against God. Number one, he offers the wrong sacrifice. Number two, he ignores God's counsel to do better. And number three, in addition to that, he kills his brother. So that's the way of Cain. Number two, and Jesus said this. You say, well, gee, I'm good. I, I don't, I'm not like Balaam. I'm not like Cain. I'm not like Korah. But Jesus said, even if you have hatred and murder and adultery in your heart, it's, you've still committed sin. You, still, you just haven't taken the next step yet. So it's interesting to look at. Number two, Balaam. I'm not going to go into detail because we covered this uh, in Numbers 22 with Second Peter. But basically, here's a prophet of God who trades gifts and talents that God gave him for money. So that's the way of Balaam. Now, with some, it could be money. With some, it could be other things. It could be uh, a desire to be noticed. It could be a desire to make your mark on the world. It could be a desire to get a following to give your spin on your doctrine and make sure that it gets propagated. It could be a desire for a title. Who knows why? But the bottom line is it's not the motives are wrong. It's not because God has called us to do it and we want to be obedient. The third one, the third example before we close today is Korah. Now, Korah you can find in number 16. He was of the children of Israel. He was a Levite, an honored tribe to be a part of. He gathered 250 leaders, not slouches, Korah gathered 250 leaders and opposed Moses. And these men, according to the scripture, were men of renown. Now, he says to Moses and Aaron, you assume too much for yourselves. You take on too much. The whole congregation is holy. Therefore, why have you exalted yourself? See, they were looking. And actually, if you think about it, that, that sounds like a good argument. You see, all these arguments are designed to be good arguments. That sounds great. When Satan went to Eve... He spun it just enough where he, was, he made a convincing argument. And that's what the enemy does. It's mostly truth, but there's just enough taint in the water where you can't see the, the, the hue of a difference in the water, but it's there. So you would think, Korah, yeah, maybe Moses and Aaron got a little prideful, got a little full of themselves, and these guys came to oppose them. No. God knew their heart. Their heart was to have more power and leadership, and they didn't accept the, the positions that Moses and Aaron had. So they wanted to challenge their authority, uh, and what happened was the ground swallowed them up. Imagine if that happened today. <laughs> the good old days, right? No. <laughs> it shows a few things. Number one, God is not impressed with leadership abilities if the heart is bad. He doesn't need their talent. 
God is not impressed with men of renown. Yeah, but those are, that, that's so-and-so. They have a reputation in the community. You ever hear that stuff happen? But that's so-and-so. If they said it, it must be, we're all sinners. That person can't sin, you know? Uh, God's not impressed with men of renown or reputations if their heart is bad. He doesn't need their affability, exposure, or name recognition. As a matter of fact, God usually uses the most humble and brings them up so he can take glory for what happened in their lives. So the question is, what do all these examples have in common and how do I apply it to my life this morning and for the rest of the week? Cain, Balaam, Korah, the teachers of Jude's day, even throw in Satan and the rebellious angels. The answer is, sadly, they all had promise in God's economy. Think about that for a moment. That's the sad part. They all could have been great servants of the Lord in God's economy. But what happened? They had inflated views of themselves, and that led to their agenda being greater than God's agenda. Be careful with that one. Which led to rebellion. Think about that. The angels of God. Now, you, you might even say, well, hopefully you don't say this, but you might say, wow, a third of the angels left God and they deserted him. Why would they do that? Did God do something wrong? Was his health benefits not good enough? You know, what was the problem? You know, did he promise them a promotion and need to give it to them? This was God we're talking about. It's just the sin of those who elevate themselves, and now their agenda becomes greater than God's agenda. It didn't mean God did, it, did anything wrong. It didn't mean Moses did anything wrong. It's no different today. The pride of man is not satisfied being on the same plane with others who serve the Lord. I'll give you an example, and I don't mind naming names if I do my history, and I've done this before, if I do my history, and I, I can make a case based on stuff that they've said. Here's a guy, Harold Camping. A lot of you know who he is. A lot of smiles. He's in his 80s. This guy has made a few false prophecies about the Lord coming back and the end of the world. And he did it again for, I think it's May of 2011. I'll get the exact quote. So, uh, you know, don't start selling your stuff and quitting your job because Harold Camping says the world's going to end in 2011. It's ridiculous. But here's a guy, every time he says it, He's an 80-year-old man acting like he's eight years old because he gets media exposure and he gets people like me talking about him. So, he gets, so we're actually fulfilling, we're furthering his cause, right? He gets attention because his agenda is greater than God's agenda. doesn't matter that the Old Testament and the New Testament say, don't do that, don't set dates, only God knows. He's going to do it anyway. So let's get to our humble congregation this morning on a Sunday. What about when pride or self gets a hold of a body of believers? What the result is, a rebellious lifestyle out of the will of God. Even if it's not to the extent that we see here with these guys. It's very easy, and I have to always be careful to say this with the children of Israel or with the false teachers of, of Paul's days. Oh, the, the Pharisees, what a bunch of bad guys. We all have a little bit of something that they had in us. But do we let it grow, or do we stifle it? Do we walk in the spirit, or do we walk in the flesh? Let's not get caught up in always pointing the finger at the children of Israel, because we're just as sinful. So we need to ask ourselves a few questions for this week. Number one, do I think more highly of myself than I ought to? Is self on the throne? Number two, is it obvious by my lifestyle and my behavior that my agenda is put above God's agenda? 
Am I self-deluded into thinking, oh, yeah, I serve the Lord with all my heart? Or can others see through my lifestyle that it doesn't match, my behavior doesn't match what my lips are saying? And number three, am I living a lifestyle submitted to the Lord or a lifestyle submitted to my own desires? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.